President Gordon B. Hinckley, leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was ordained and set apart as the 15th President of the Church on Sunday, March 12, 1995. He had previously served 14 years as a counselor in the First Presidency, and prior to that as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for 20 years. He was born in Salt Lake City, a son of Bryant Stringham and Adna, Ada Bittner Hinckley. One of his forebears, Stephen Hopkins, came to America on the Mayflower. Another, Thomas Hinckley, served as governor of the Plymouth Colony from 1680 to 1692. His first employment was as a newspaper carrier for the Deseret News. He served a mission in Great Britain, where he also served with, as an assistant to Joseph F. Merrill, the church apostle who presided over the European missions at that time. For 20 years, he directed all church publications, public communications. And after being named executive secretary of the General Missionary Committee in 1951, he managed the missionary program of the church for seven years. He was president of the East Mill Creek Stake in Salt Lake City when he was called to be an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve in April, on April 6, 1958. Three years later, President Hinckley was named to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And on July 23, 1981, he was called to the First Presidency to serve as counselor. And on December 2, 1982, was named second counselor to President Spencer W. Kimball. He's had a major role in administering the ecclesiastical and temporal affairs of the Church, whose 11 million members now reside in, more, in, all, in approximately 160 nations and territories across the world. His Church assignments have taken him around the world many times. He's dedicated more temples than any other leader in the history of the Church. And aside from his church administration assignments, he's performed and been honored by many other groups. I'd just like to say, brothers and sisters, that we sit at a unique point in history. There are two periods of time that all the prophets have pointed to. The first is the meridian of time, the time when Jesus was on the earth the time when the atonement was performed. The second time that all the prophets have looked toward is the dispensation of the fullness of times, our day, your day, the day when we can sit and listen to a prophet of the Lord who will teach us of the Lord's ways and guide us in his paths as we wrap up the scenes on this earth, as we prepare this earth for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful that we have the opportunity today to sit at the feet of the prophet and to learn from him, President Hinckley. Thank you, President Bateman. Thanks to all of you who are here this morning. I'm pleased to be with you. It's a great honor to be here. How very much I love you. How I honor you and respect you. You do great credit to this church. 
You are not everything you ought to be, but by and large, you're very good. <laughs> and you can become what you ought to be. You are very fortunate to be here. What a blessing to mingle with thousands of your own kind, to establish friendships that will endure, to be engaged in a great and challenging pursuit of knowledge. This is a marvelous time in the history of the world. How exciting it is to be on the stage of life when one millennium rolls into another. That happens only every thousand years. It has happened only twice since the birth of the Son of God. We speak of this sick old world which has seen so much of tragedy almost all of it caused by man's inhumanity to man. It is the result of greed and ambition, of selfishness and brutality. In the first millennium, the world lapsed into an age of darkness. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, he declared. Men did not live long at that time. There was so much of disease, of pestilence, that raged over many parts of the earth. The great plague took the lives of one-third of the people of Europe. With all of the disease, with wars and conflict, with accidents and hunger and cold, so widely prevalent, I sometimes wonder how enough people survived to provide you and me with ancestors. Then the Renaissance began to dawn. It flowered, and I believe it is still flowering with great magnificence. As we close this great and remarkable century, I stand in awe at the blessings we have. I have now lived through 90 years of this century. When I think of the wonders that have come to pass in my lifetime, more than during all the rest of human history, I stand in reverence and gratitude. I think of the automobile and the airplane, of computers, fax machines, email and the internet. It is all so miraculous and wonderful. I think of the giant steps made in medicine and sanitation. I think that all of the great medicines we use, with the possible exception of aspirin, have come forth in this century, including the antibiotics that have healed and made well generations now of beneficiaries. When I was born, the life expectancy of a man in the United States was 50 years. Today it is more than 75. To think that 25 years have been added to the life of an average man in North America and Western Europe is miraculous. I am led to exclaim with the poet, we are living, we are dwelling in a grand and awful time, in an age on ages telling to be living is sublime. And capping all of this, there has been the restoration of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I are a part of the miracle and wonder of this great cause and kingdom, which is sweeping over the earth, blessing the lives of people wherever it reaches.
how profoundly thankful I feel. No generation that ever walked the earth is as fortunate as you are you. I believe that it was of this day that the prophet Joel spoke when he said, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. We are the beneficiaries of the visions and the dreams, the labors and the sacrifices of all who have gone before us. They are gone, and we are here. Recently, at the dedication of the Columbus Temple in Ohio, I had an interesting experience. My wife and daughter were with me. A granddaughter and her husband and children drove up from St. Louis. As I sat in the celestial room, I thought of my great-grandfather, the first in my family to join the Church. I had recently visited his place of burial in Canada, just to the north of the New York boundary line. He accepted the gospel when the first missionaries came there from Kirtland. His children were too young for baptism. He died at the young age of 38. Tradition has it that he was the victim of a smallpox epidemic which raged through that part of the country. I do not know of anything of significance that he did in the Church other than that he kept the faith. Then there was my grandfather who was baptized in Nauvoo and who subsequently crossed the plains in the migration of our people. His young wife and his brother-in-law both died on the same day. He made rough coffins and buried them, and picked up his infant child, and carried her to the Salt Lake Valley. At the request of Brigham Young, he built Cole Fort, was the first president of the stake in Fillmore, and did a thousand other things to move this work forward. Then came my father. He came here to the BYU Academy as a very young man and was taught by President Carl G. Mazur. He went east to school and then he taught here in the business department until the brethren asked him to move to Salt Lake and take over responsibilities there. He became president of the largest stake in the church with more than 15,000 members. These three good men represent the three generations of my forebears who have been faithful in the Church. Then, while seated in the temple, I looked down at my daughter, at her daughter, who is my grandchild, and at her children, my great-grandchildren. I suddenly realized that I stood right in the middle of these seven generations three before me and three after me. In that sacred and hallowed house, there passed through my mind a sense of the tremendous obligation that was mine to pass on all that I had received as an inheritance from my forebears to the generations who now come after me. I thought of an experience I had a long time ago. In the summer, we lived on a farm. We had a little old tractor. There was a dead tree I wished to pull. 
I fastened one end of a chain to the tractor and the other end to the tree. As the tractor began to move, the tree shook a little, and then the chain broke. I looked at that broken link and wondered how it could have given way. I went to the hardware store and bought a repair link. I put it together again, but it was an awkward and ugly connection. The chain was never, never the same. As I sat in the celestial room of the temple in Ohio, pondering these things, I said to myself, never permit yourself to become a weak link in the chain of your generations. It is so important that we pass on without blemish our inheritance of body and brain, and if you please, faith and virtue, untarnished to the generations who will come after us. You young men and you young women, most of you will marry and have children. Your children will have children, as will the children who come after them. Life is a great chain of generations that we in the Church believe must be linked together. I fear there will be some broken links. Do not let yourself become such, I pray. Stay close to the Church. Stay close all of your lives. It really doesn't matter where you serve, what office you fill. There is no small or unimportant duty in this, the Church and Kingdom of God. One does not have to be a general authority, a state president, a member of the High Council, a bishop, or a leader in the auxiliary organizations to serve in an acceptable way before the Lord. What matters is the spirit in which we serve and the manner in which we apply our talents and our resources. What is an acceptable offering unto the Lord in terms of Church callings? The first requisite, as is noted in the scripture, is cleanliness of hands and heart. The psalmist wrote, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I submit it is not the calling we have, it is not the office in which we serve, but rather the manner in which we serve. It is the attitude with which we pay our tithes and offerings. Do we pay them grudgingly as a duty, or do we give the Lord our offerings with thanksgiving for the opportunity, with a cheerful heart and a pleasant way? Are we inclined to hold to the last penny, or do we add a little on the assumption that we may have forgotten some item that came to us during the year? When one of our newer temples was built, I received a letter from a boy who said, I am eight years old. I am sending $100 to help build the temple. I do not like to do this. It it was very hard to earn, but I want to give this for the construction of the Lord's house.
few days after that, I received a phone call from a well-to-do friend who said, I wish to give a million dollars to the construction of that temple. Whose gift was the more acceptable? Both of them were, I believe, the boy's hundred as well as the man's million. The Lord made it clear that the widow's might is received with great appreciation because of the spirit in which it is given. But I am satisfied that he also would have thanked the man who was well-to-do for his generosity in giving with that same spirit. Sometimes men and women in the church aspire for office. This is unfortunate. It becomes the very reason why they should not be granted such office. I think of a bishop whom I had to call one day to report that a missionary he had sent into the field was failing and was determined to come home. The mission president had done all he could with him. The bishop, at his own expense in time and money, went to the place where the young man was laboring. He talked with him. He cried with him. He prayed with him. He blessed him. And then he went out and worked with him. The missionary was saved. He finished honorably. All of his future life will be blessed by reason of the love and kindness of a great bishop. The other evening I looked at a video a man had sent me. It is the story of his mother. It is titled, Morning Will Come. It is the story of Misawa Toma, whom I first met on Okinawa almost 30 years ago. She was married not long before the Second World War broke out. <clears throat> During the war, she, her husband, and their two little children suffered unspeakable misery. They lived in a cave hiding from the soldiers, both American and Japanese, as that area of the world was devastated with gunfire, cannon fire, and bombs, with tens of thousands of casualties. Her husband suffered a collapse. He wanted to die. He cried out to be killed. She felt utterly helpless and broken. A vision came to her in the night when her family were hungry to the point of death. There came into her being a sense of the reality of God. It gave her strength to carry on. This little woman literally saved her family. She fed them leaves with little creatures from the river. She found a hive of wild honey which revived her husband. After the night of awful darkness, the morning eventually came. Somehow they survived. Two sister missionaries subsequently called on her. Their message touched her heart. She and her husband and their children were eventually baptized. He became the first Native Branch President on Okinawa. That is when I met them in 1960. They were beginning to prosper, had a nice home that had come of their industry, and were faithful and active in the church. Then the husband suffered a stroke and died. 
That was in 1962. Because of the actions of another man, she was left with terrible debts for her business and for her husband's medical care. For long years, she worked from 5 o'clock in the morning until 11 o'clock each night. To get food for her children, she asked the grocer to give her the tops, the green leaves, from bunches of carrots and radishes. Sometimes she would come home and say to her children, we will sing hymns tonight. That meant to the children that there was no food to eat that night or the next morning. Her children, <laughs> excuse me, her children grew. They received scholarships to the Hawaii campus, then known as the Church College, and later came here to BYU. They served missions. They became involved in business and became highly successful. They wrote to her their mother. and told her to sell the old house, pay the debts, and come and live comfortably with them. They bought for her a beautiful home in Tokyo so that she might live there and retain her independence. So far as I know, she held no office in the church except that of a worker in the Tokyo temple. She may have taught a class or two, but she did not preside over any organization. Was her offering acceptable to the Lord? She gave her children the ultimate, having nurtured them in faith with prayer and love. She did whatever she was asked to do. She died here in Provo three years ago. But today, as I think of her family, I think of her great offering and its acceptability before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, as President Clark taught us, it is not where we serve, but how we serve. Is there gladness in our hearts, joy in our lives, as we reach out to bless others? At the close of each day, can we quietly sing, Have I done any good in the world today? Have I helped anyone in need? Have I cheered up the sad and made someone feel glad? If not, I have failed indeed. God bless you. My dear friends, be faithful, be true, be loyal to the great cause of which you are a part. Never become a weak link in the chain of your family's generations. Do whatever you are asked to do, and do it with a glad heart. Do not worry about office or position in the Church. Simply do whatever your calling requires, and do it with joy and gladness. May the Lord bless you as you strive to serve Him in righteousness and with faith. I humbly pray as I leave my love and my blessing with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.